Father in heaven, we are grateful that we have the opportunity to, to have your presence here. Without you, we can't do anything. And I just pray <clears throat> that you will speak to each of our hearts. We give you our ears to listen. I pray that you will help us understand your word. Open our understanding as you did to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As we said, God wants us happy. To the man who pleases him, God gives happiness. And God wants us to have happy homes. To a young man, Ellen White wrote, you should have a wife that could make you a, what's the next word? Happy home. To a young woman, she wrote, will the one you marry bring happiness to your home? To another, she mused, has he the traits of character that will make her happy. A new couple was counseled to evaluate the relationship for the genuine components of happiness. Will this new relationship prove a source of true, enduring happiness? Happiness is important. Happiness is possible. But happiness is rare. It should come as no surprise that many homes are not happy. Dr. Linda Waite, the Lucy Flower Professor of Sociology and Director of the Center on Aging at the University of Chicago, studied unhappy marriages. With colleagues, she reviewed the National Survey of Family and Households done by the University of Wisconsin in 1987 and 88, with a follow-up in 1992-94. Several of her fi findings I found particularly interesting. First, Three out of four unhappily married uh, adults are married to someone who is happy with the, with the relationship. Imagine being in a marriage where one is happy with the relationship while the other is miserable. It's sad to even imagine such a broken marriage relationship, yet it is not uncommon. In the same study, the vast majority of divorces, in fact 74%, took place in adults who had reported happy marriage, marriages when they were first studied only five years earlier. Someone could say, well, I'm not happy in this marriage. I'll get a divorce and find someone that can make me happy. Unfortunately, Waits data suggests those who divorce are seldom happy either. Despite what people say, your best shot at happiness is your first time. In a longitudinal 15-year study by uh, University of Illinois professor Ed Diner, the levels he evaluated the happiness levels of more than 24,000 people in Germany. And although Di Dr. Diner's research found that the happiest people all appear to have strong social relationships, his study found that the people who were most happy after their marriage were happy prior to their marriage. They were no more happy married than they were single. 
This finding simply documents what Inspiration had previously reported. There's not one marriage in a hundred that results happily. Are you happy? Do you know what makes you happy or miserable? What are the components? Most people don't understand happiness. Great searches in life are, I want to be happy. And yet, most people don't know how to get it. The uh, study found that the people who were most satisfied with their lives before their marriage were the ones that were most apt to stay married. People who get married and stay married are more satisfied than the average long before they got married. If you want a happy marriage, you need to understand about being happily single. And you need to understand the ingredients that make for happiness. What brings happiness to a home? What makes one home happy and another unhappy? Is it good or bad luck? Why does my wife's bread taste good? Is that chance or is that science? If you leave the salt out, it may be nutritious, but it's tasteless. What makes homes happy? There are some salt ingredients that commonly get left out. If you leave one of these essentials out, you'll lack some of the happiness that you could have. Um, <clears throat> this is not only an important first question before someone gets married, it's also an important question in counseling people who are couples that are having trouble. Do the parties understand how to bring happiness to the home? It's too bad to ask the question late, but better late than never. Do you know what brings happiness to the home? Don't be satisfied with some vague idea, some abstract notion. It is not simply marriage that brings happiness. Studies are crystal clear on this. Marriage isn't a magical elixir that suddenly makes two unhappy people happy ever after. There are a few absolute requirements. I would like to focus on the ten major ingredients. It's not a complete list, but I'm going to say something right at the start and I'm going to repeat it at the end because I don't want anyone to feel discouraged by this lecture. Um, no one has all the qualities that I'm going to be describing for happiness. No one. Um, and the important part of happiness is to know the goals you are striving for. I want us to focus on some specifics so we don't have, as we mentioned, uh, a, a uh, vague notion. First, and most important, is to understand that only Christ can bring happiness. He's the author of joy. If he's not the center of the relationship, there can't be happiness. Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of what? Joy, and at your right hand are 
pleasures forevermore. If you're not happy, I can say unequivocally, you don't have Christ. He brings peace and chaos in storms. The martyrs burned at the stake were singing. Why? Because they had Christ. With Christ, whatever your home situation, whatever your marriage situation is, you can be happy. You can be contented. Adam felt the need for a wife before God made Eve for him, but he went to sleep contented and happy. And God gave him his need. With Christ, you can know that all your true needs will be supplied. With David, you can sing, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Without Christ, you can never be happy. Have you made an unreserved surrender to Christ? Is he the center of your life? Is he the center of your relationship? Proverbs 23, 26, My son, give me your heart. Let your eyes find happiness in my ways. If we do not find happiness in his ways, he doesn't have our heart. I love to find instruction in the Bible. When I'm reading the Bible, I am asking the question. I open it up and I say, Lord, tell me what you want me to do from this instruction. If we're reading the Bible and not leaving with instruction, then we are uh, foolish builders because they heard and didn't do. We need something to do each time we leave the Bible. And so I love to find instruction. I'm looking for it. What's something to do? Here's something to do. My son, give me your heart. The word give is also translated offer, show, yield, grant, deliver, commit, bring. Is that your response, Lord? If this is what you want, here's my heart. Take it. I can't keep it. And so you want to ask the question of somebody, of yourself, and of somebody you're thinking of as a life's partner, do they have a habitual devotional life? A daily prayer and Bible study and obedience to the Bible's instruction. Is there joyfulness in doing this? Or is it tedious? Is it wearisome? Is it irksome to them? Is it something they can't wait to do? Thy word was found, and I did eat it, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. I, I think of my dad. Every morning, early in the morning, I never remember waking up, but what my dad wasn't out long before, out on his walk. He memorized the entire New Testament. You go for a walk and then, or a, a run, and then halfway through it, he went to his prayer place, and there with his Bible, he would be studying and praying through the day's responsibilities. And he told me, he said he couldn't wait to get up. His palms would get sweaty. He was so excited he would be listening to God's Word. Um, when we moved to uh, another state than where we are now in Oregon, we met some, uh, some people who had been active in a self-supporting ministry. And, uh, and yet they had left the, the church, left um, 
the Lord. But we invited them to uh, come to church. They did come one time, talk to them. And I was interested in what the wife told me. She had been involved in this mission venture, um, youth instructing venture. And yet, it, be, it was tedious to her. It was an act she was putting on, and she finally just gave it up. That is not what you want in a relationship. Um, somebody who's putting on an act that they love the Lord. Um, if you obey and do right, a light will show you the way and fill you with happiness. Psalm 97, 11. Psalm 119, 14. Obeying your instructions brings as much happiness as being rich. I love your commands, Psalm 119.47. They bring me happiness. I find happiness in your law. Is there active soul winning? These are the questions you want to ask of anybody that you are considering as a life's partner. Active soul winning, not from a mere sense of duty, but a favorite activity to engage in. I say unto you, Jesus said, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Um, is there support of church with time and money, with a grateful heart, wishing more could be given? Is there happiness in sacrifice or a desire to make a lot of money so giving can be without sacrifice? It is more blessed to give. It makes more, one happier, more to be inf, in, <coughs> envied, uh, the Amplified Bible says, to give than to receive. I'm so grateful for my wife. She loves to give. This time of year, she gets those catalogs out from ADRA that you can give Christmas gifts to the needy. Her sister, uh, Dina, the only reason she has a part-time income is so that she has some more money to give. And um, um, if we have no money, it's not because Sherry's been shopping. It's because Sherry's been giving. And giving brings happiness. Selfish brings, selfishness brings unhappiness. Is prayer meeting a habit? Not forsaking the assemblies of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Now, if you find that the one you are dating doesn't have a prayer meeting habit, is reluctant to go, would rather sp spend time with you, and is only going because you're going, don't be flattered. Stop dating the person. Is there habitual criticism? Now, in all of this, you're looking for a trend, not a one-time error. Is there an earnest effort to overcome and avoid these types of evils? although there may be a failure from time to time. Ephesians 4.31, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Here is something that I can't tell you um, how important this is. Never let a, a relationship develop around a common hate object. Do you know there are, there are two ways to bring unity? One is you're unified on a common object of love, a unified goal, and there are other ways to bring uh, unity like Hitler did, where you hate common, uh, con common enemies. Uh, in Stephen's address to the Jewish Sanhedrin, he spoke of the Israelites in the wilderness who in their hearts 
turned back to Egypt. They were in church, they were counted among the faithful in Israel, but at heart they were really idolaters. <clears throat> Look for the signs of idolatry. Do either of you show a love of the world by how <clears throat> you spend the time and money, the type of reading you choose, how uh, you dress, what music you listen to, what foods you eat, what sports you engage in and watch? Scripture is clear, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. <clears throat> is there a restlessness, a lack of peace? But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Uh, reaching out, a, just a discontent. It's a bad sign. Is there a problem with moral impurity? Is there a secret vice? Can you recognize the signs of somebody who has a problem with moral impurity? Um, just as there are signs for drug addiction, there are telltale evidences for moral impurity. Um, secret vice. I gave some material at GYC on this in Baltimore. It's about a half an hour on looking at the telltale uh, signs, and you can get that on audio verse. Is there any pornography? Are there off-color or suggestive words or jokes? Is there any improper behavior or attempt in that direction? Flee youthful lusts that war against the soul, but follow righteousness, faith, love, peace with them that call on the on the Lord out of a pure heart. 1 Peter 2.11, abstain from fleshly, fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now modern society politely and optimistically calls it living together before marriage. But that's not an accurate description. It's really living together without marriage. What the words um, in our language do, the Bible calls sin by its right name, but what we tend to do is sanitize it and make it uh, less evil. Sociology refers to this in a properly aseptic and clinical term, um, cohabitation, significant others. The Bible calls it fornication. Plainly, firmly, and explicitly it is forbidden under any and every circumstance, including after engagement. It may be common, but it is forbidden. It is forbidden because it has devastating consequences in your life. Um, when fornication was discovered, the Bible penalty was death to both parties generally. Under special circumstances, marriage was granted, but it was granted without any recourse to any future divorce, no matter what the circumstances. Uh, if you married, no divorce. Um, under another circumstance, with the concurrence of the father, there was to be a complete and total separation of the parties and a payment of a fine, a substantial fine by the male. Now, you need to recognize a sales pitch when you hear it. Make no mistake about it, for the sin of fornication, there is a sales pitch. I've listed just a few of the sales lines. Um, from everybody does it, to training and preparation in marriage, screen out incompatible matches, test before you buy, decrease expenses by sharing costs. Um, 
Millions of young and not so old young people find these superficial and false arguments persuasive. Now, let me tell you something. If you want to know what a past generation did secretly, look at what the present generation does openly. Uh, the Bible principle was to, Abraham, was to David, the prophet said to David, and this is a principle across society, you did this thing in secret, but your son will do this openly before the world. What is open and before the world is what my generation did secretly. So uh, that's a fact. Um, but it first started as a secret practice, but now it's done shamelessly. When, when I first started medicine, people would come into my office, and I'd ask them their social history, and I'd go over, are they married? And they would look down if they were not married and say, no. Now they don't give it a second thought. Yeah, no, we're, we're not married. But one highly cited researcher, Larry Bumpass, uh, professor emeritus of sociology at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, found that more than half of all first-time marriages are preceded by couples living together in some form. This research was published in 2000. In the year 2004, the numbers were climbing. But the Bible solemnly warns, don't do it. Don't plant those seeds. Proverbs 16, 25, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Fornication is taking the privileges of marriage without the responsibility and the commitment to marriage. By its very nature, marriage demands long-term, lifetime commitments. The facts are different than the sales pitch. In research conducted at Yale University and Columbia University and published in the American Sociological Review, they found that overall, the association between premarital cohabitation and subsequent marital stability increases the risk of divorce by 80%. It's perfectly predictable. Marriage demands self-denial. If the seeds of self-indulgence are planted, a harvest of self-indulgence will be reaped. You remember I told you uh, three predictor, that there were three predictors and I gave you one predictor of the future in the last lecture. A second predictor is what you sow you'll reap. It's a predictor. Absolute. And uh, if there is no seed, uh, the seeds of no commitment reap a harvest of no commitment. A study using nationally representative samples of 1,235 women ages 20 to 37 indicated that, that married women who were in a fornication relationship were 3.3 times more likely to have sex with someone other than their husband after they were married than those who had not uh, had fornication before marriage. Single women who cohabitated were 1.7 times more likely to have a secondary sex partner than single women who did not live with their partners. And of course, plant the seed of fornication, reap the harvest of adultery. Those who are not under the constraints of God's law before marriage will not be under the restraints of God's law after marriage. 
Glenn Stanton, Director of Global Insight for Culture and Family Renewal and Senior Analyst of Marriage and Sexuality and author of Marriage on Trial, has an excellent bibliography, article after article of the current studies on premarital adultery. And I've listed some of them. Across the board, in study after study, living before, together before marriage brings huge problems. But leaving the studies with their studied, detached objectivity, meet some people who have reaped the bitter harvest. I have actual correspondence with these women and have permission to share them. Here was a woman in her early 30s. Over time, I felt guilty about the physical relationship and it put a strain on other aspects of our relationship. I didn't believe I should marry him, but convinced myself that the only way God would forgive me was to marry him anyway. We had a bad marriage. Another woman in her late 30s. I look back on my past sexual experiences with regret and shame, still harvesting the fruit of Sodom. I have patience with diseases they fear they caught while living in sin. Woman in her late 30s. We both have children from a previous marriage, but we let our relationship drift away from God's Word. We spent more and more time together, all together as a family, in hopes that it would prepare our children, ages 13 and 9, mine and 6, his, to become a family unit when we were married. Even though we did not live together, we would stay together overnight, and the kids would stay with us. You know what else happened. I made a huge mistake in putting what he wanted and what the kids wanted before what God wanted. Now I am pregnant. Outside of wedlock, he has become angry and irresponsible. I am full of shame and resentment. I know I have to face the fact that I may have not only to continue to raise my two sons without help, but now I have a new baby too. She closes with this statement. This is why God says to have the commitment and safety of marriage first. Negative things happen when a woman gives that part of, of her to a man without having a marriage first. And that's only a small amount of the bitter harvest of the seeds of Sodom. This is the tip of the iceberg, ladies and gentlemen. This is not including the long-term consequences of the sin repeated in our children, in our grandchildren, in our great-grandchildren, the generational unhappiness, the divorce, the guilt, the shame and disease as each sinks lower and lower than the last. This harms the children greatly. Children from single-parent homes are at three to four times greater risk of obesity, drug abuse, or drug addiction. Alcoholism than in a two-parent family. Children with a single parent have increased risk of psychiatric disease, suicide, or attempted suicide, or injury. These results stand even after making adjustments for factors such as socioeconomic status, parents' addiction, mental disease. Studies show problems in cognitive and academic ability resulting in lower academic achievement, lower math scores, a greater failure rate, lower SAT scores, lower IQ scores, higher dropout rate, lower college attendance rate. Children from single parent homes also exhibit a greater degree of antisocial behavior Indica uh, indicating higher rates of criminal behavior, greater delinquencies from both girls and boys, and increased violence behavior in schools, they are also at greater risk for being physically and sexually abused. 
And this doesn't include our lasting influence for evil on those around. Don't have anything to do with moral depravity. If anyone suggests that direction that is seeking a relationship with you, drop them like you would drop a hot potato. Now, if you struggle with moral purity in your own thoughts, in your actions or in your habits, there's hope in the Lord. The Word of God can help you. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed thereto, according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. Study the areas on moral purity and the consequences of impurity. Memorize scripture in those areas. Put it to music. There's a wonderful index uh, to the writings of Ellen White. Three-volume blue book index. Go through the section on secret vice. Read it. Listen to the Bible on CD, on the iPod. Carry the Bible with you. Memorize it. Your thoughts must be controlled. Gird up the, the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end. Pray without ceasing. Be around people. Avoid being by yourself or with those that are impure. Avoid idleness. Have a list that you carry with you at all times of the things you must do. Now, the next, is there intemperance in the one that you are uh, dating? These are very important questions that we're uh, going through. Is there use of addictive drugs such as nicotine, alcohol, or caffeine? Ellen White says a very insightful statement. She says, we can deal with the weaknesses of our spouses, but not with their vices. Is there a careful diet, exercise, lifestyle, self-discipline? Following the example of Paul, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. 1 Corinthians 9.27 Is there a settled purpose to have a body temple that is undefiled? Happiness does not come from bearing your spouse. Are you both living in such a way that self-inflicted premature illness and death will come to the family leaving you or your spouse in loneliness and poverty. And then, how united are you? Here we want to look at issues of union. The first, the presence of Christ. The second, underlying unity. Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Folk, there are certain people, square pegs don't go into round holes. There are people that I would not do well together with. People that would not do well together with me. Guess what? I shouldn't marry one of those people. Now, how can we find out um, compatibility? Um, their happiness, notice this, um, the happiness of both parties the happiness and prosperity of the married life depend upon the unity of the parties. Adventist Home, page 81. Do you enjoy similar activities? They don't need to be identical, but they should be complementary. Do you have a, a value, a healthy lifestyle? Do you like healthy food and activities? Do you share similar philosophies? 
Do you respond to similar speakers? Are your goals similar? Is there unity in the use of time and money? You should be united on those things that you, you hold as core values. And those core values are based on the Word of God. One Lord must be united. One faith must be united. One baptism. Your marriage will be entirely as pleasant as your unity. Unity increases the pleasure of a good marriage, and over time you become more and more united. It's a wonderful to be living in a united state. Unity is an important part of happiness, but unity comes from the presence of Christ. Another question. Are you habitually, or is the one that you're thinking to marry or court, are, is there habitual courtesy? T Titus 3.2, be peaceable, gentle, showing complete courtesy to all. Is there sympathy for others' pain or troubles, or is there a callous indifference? How are animals treated? Is there cruelty? Is there gentleness and courtesy, or is there harshness and rudeness? Are others put down in jest? Are there insults, even in jest? And then, something that is so important. Is there deference? This is such a crucial character quality. Are you deferential? Is the one you're dating deferential, or are you both, or either, willful? Because fights in marriage are so common, some researchers have concluded that all marriages have fights, that this is normal. Some say these never resolve and can't resolve. One said, marriage is nature's way of preventing us from fighting with strangers. <laughs> but don't buy ideas like that for a second. Fighting and disagreements are not necessary. Satan tries to get us to accept as normal and inevitable that which we should reject out of hand as evil. He does the same with every kind of sin. Deference is yielding your preferences and even your rights. I tried to think of something that Sherry and I disagree with, and I finally thought of one. Sherry's eyes, they get a glare if there's overhead lights, and I need all the light I can to just see. Now we could stay in different rooms. We could fight about it. Um, what are we going to do? You can't have an overhead light on and off at the same time. Well, I'm the head of my house, and I insist that we do it Sherry's way. When I lose Jesus and I become willful, you don't have to guess what I reap. More willfulness. I am planting in my own life and in the lives of others the seeds that I'm going to reap. But with the presence of Jesus, he helps me plant gentle seeds of deference. And I like the crop. More gentle deference. And those are, are around me. You know, when we were in Georgia... We had about two miles away, we had neighbors that were making meth 
and uh, <laughs> they were, shall we say, messed up. But um, <laughs> there was littering. There was just all kinds of uh, stuff uh, on the uh, on the road that led up to where our house was. It was a ways away, true, but we didn't like it. Now we could have just turned them in, and. Uh, of course, they would have been angry with us. We would have had no influence with them. Um, they might come over and shoot us. We would have been right, dead right. But we decided on a different plan. We went out and we picked up the trash about two miles from our home. Sixteen bags. They dropped more. We kept picking it up. And over time, neighbors joined us and it became much better and the community put pressure on, on the family that was doing some of the trashy living. Deference works. Abraham was deferential toward Lot. Joshua took the portion of Canaan that remained. Now, I want to say something else about willfulness, because this is very important. Willfulness is often seen in those with a moral problem. In fact, there are several problems that go along with moral impurity. Dishonesty, 100%. Um, immoral person will always be dishonest. Anger goes along with it. Argumentativeness goes along with it. These things Paul says. Willfulness, uncleanliness may go along with it. Uh, dirty minds. That's how it came to come, uh, that's how that expression uh, came to be applied. But they may be accompanied by apparent religiousness. What scripture says, make no friendships with an angry man and with a furious man thou shalt not go. Them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise governments, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, not self-willed, not soon angry. Proverbs 22.5, thorns and snares line the path of the willful. Whoever values life will stay at a distance. Now, as an aside, there are two kinds of lay ministries. Supporting and very independent ministries. It's a very bad sign when you're, Ellen White says, when somebody can't be under authority when they want to do it alone. Beware of potential life's partners with that kind of uh, character. Beware of church members like that as well. Now, how do we find out if our special friend is deferential? You have to watch them over, over time. But do they insist on their own way? What happens when their will is crossed? I have watched... Um, people who are very nice, they use niceness as a way to get their own way. But what happens when they're nice and they still don't get their way? You, you want to see that. You want to see a person in a situation where their way is crossed. How do they relate when things don't go exactly the way they want? Are they stubborn or self-willed? Are they easily angered? Are they critical of authority figures? Do they get along well with others? Are they friendly? Adventist Tome 107, do not try to compel each other to do as you wish. 
manifestations of self-will destroy the peace and happiness of the home. Let not your married life be one of contention. If you do, you will be unhappy. Be kind in speech and gentle in action, giving up your own wishes. What important instruction? Giving up what? My own what? Wishes. Who said this? God did. Who did he say it to? Me. Jesus does this all the time for us, folk. And this is how he wants us to be, like him. Watch well your words, for they have a powerful influence for good or for ill. Notice it is not only what we say, but how we say it. Allow no sharpness to come into your voices. Bring into your united, your united life the fragrance of Christ's likeness. This is how to have a happy home. Am I like this? That's the question we need to ask. Now, the fifth um, is an important one. Love for order and organization. Under the Old Covenant, uncleanliness, disorder, disorganization were illustrations of sin. Idols could be worshipped haphazardly without regard for neatness or cleanliness. You, should, you could go in and worship idols with any old get-up. But worship of God was different. Cleanliness, order, organization were rigidly enforced. The houses of worshipers were to be completely clean. The bodies of the worshipers were to be fully washed. Genesis 35, 2. Then Jacob said to his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. In the New Covenant, we have baptism, that's washing, foot washing services. Cleanliness is not optional for Christian homes. A wife and mother cannot make home agreeable, Adventist home, page 22, unless she possesses a love for order, preserves her dignity, and has good government. Therefore, all who fail on these points should begin at once to educate themselves in this direction and cultivate the very things wherein is their greatest lack. This is so important. I can't imagine being married to somebody who's untidy. Although she might not have married me. That takes a while for it all to sink in, I think. Are you habitually neat, tidy, orderly, organized? Is there planning and scheduling? Is the room neat and tidy? Is the bed made? Are things put away? Are clothes hung up? I remember when I came under conviction on these and in my office, I determined that I would not leave the office without my office being cleaned every night. And uh, it made an impact on the staff. Uh, and I, I told them, because I wanted to be held accountable, when they asked me about it, I said, I realized this was my Christian duty. Now after I'd said that, guess what I had to do? <laughs> Live up to it. Yeah. Finances is one of the three common areas of disagreement, and this is a very important area in home happiness. All couples should have the fundamentals before marriage. 
Um, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. We're not owners, we are stewards. Is there recognition on the part of the one that you're dating that God owns all things? Is money spent for vanity, show, or display? Isaiah 55, 2. Wherefore do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Remember that our actions, our thoughts, our deeds, and our words, our seed, what kind of harvest will vanity produce? A harvest of vanity. More money will need to be expended. It'll never end. There will always be something more to display. Fashionable and expensive clothing for ourselves and our children. Luxury cars, extravagant homes with elegant furnishings. We must have the latest tennis rackets, golf clubs, ski equipment. Our membership must be in the finest country clubs. Our vacations have to be to exotic places. Our children need to be schooled in the most exclusive um, academies in the, uh, in the community. Each of these expenditures are seed for more expenditures and a further harvest. And Satan aims to absorb every penny not to benefit our families, not to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, not to give our children a proper education, not to influence our neighbors for heaven, but to increase our pride and love of self. In the wilderness, the children of Israel gave their jewelry up to build the house of God. The early Christians did the same. Peter said, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. Paul said likewise, in like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array. In place of spending money on vanity show display, we can give money to advance the cause of God. This giving is seed sown that will produce a harvest after its kind, hastening the coming of Christ for His bride and for the great wedding to which we can be a part. And our weddings here are only a type. Is money spent on amusement or selfish pleasure? Is there love for going to shows, movies, renting videos, expensive restaurants, professional sports? Is money expended in the latest video games? Is money expended for fictitious books and magazines? Is there self-denial for others' needs? Do each of you have savings accounts? You must avoid prodigality on one side and selfish hoarding on the other. Is there avoidance of debt? Is there generosity toward the poor? Is there faithfulness in tithes and offerings? These are questions that have to be answered. By every penny we spend, we're told, we show whether we love God supremely and our neighbor as ourself. We're sowing seed. Is there carelessness in work habits or is there patient, thorough diligence? This shows the ability to commit. Is there talk only or is there discipline follow through? Be, diligent, be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well to thy herds. The details, ladies and gentlemen, the details matter. Is there industriousness and efficiency? Is there reliability, punctuality, and carefulness? Is it easy for both of you to get a job? Is this a person in demand, the worker everyone wants? People are so lazy today, it's hard to get good workers. Good workers are in demand. If now it may be we're in a new time, I, 
um, going forward. This may not quite be true. But up until now, if a person had trouble finding a job, you need to know why. If the one you are dating is having trouble getting or keeping a job, it's a bad sign. Is it the attitude? Is there vigor running from job to job? Can you get a good recommendation from teachers and work supervisors on work habits, study habits, industry reliability? Notice how the ingredients for home happiness are not dependent on talents and gifts and intelligence. If they were, only a few homes could be happy. This thorough patient diligence with consistency is necessary if you're going to raise children. Like braces on teeth, the gentle, firm, constant pressure molds everything. The ingredients for happiness are available to all. All can have the presence of Christ, which brings unity, teaches courtesy and deference, and gives a love for order and organization. And as love for Christ is awakened, all, whether rich or poor, will be eager to learn to manage more wisely the money to which they've been entrusted and the time to which they've been entrusted and give to others the joy that they have. The presence of Christ alone will motivate us toward a consistent, thorough, patient diligence like Him who is with us. And then, practical knowledge of running a home is needed. Deuteronomy 1.13, Select wise and practical men, those known among your tribes, whom I may appoint as your leaders. Women, if you're looking for a husband, you're looking for a leader. And this is how, these are instructions for selecting a leader. Wise, practical. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, excuse me, and it will be well with you. Now, there was a European boy that had taken a fancy to a girl, and Ellen White was asked to investigate him. In a letter written in Europe in 1886, she said, I had reason to think she disliked domestic labor, and I knew you should have a wife that could make you a happy home. Note, if this girl disliked domestic labor, she couldn't have a, make a happy home. It's not an optional. This is an essential. So Ellen White talked to the girl. She asked the girl if she loved the fellow. The girl said, no. You can read all the questions she asks in the book, Letters to Young Lovers. But I want you to notice the question she asked about homemaking skills. I asked her if she had any experience in those duties that make a home. So she wanted to know, what's the experience in domestic duties? That's a critical question. If you're going to have a home, you need to know that the person knows how to run a home. Before I was uh, invited to move to Grants Pass in, into a dermatology group, they wanted to know, did I know dermatology? Is that a fair question? Yeah. Before you have somebody that's going to be a husband or a wife, is it a fair question to know if they know how to be a husband or a wife? Pretty straightforward, isn't it? And that's what Ellen White did. What's your experience in running a home? Is this something you like to do? What is your experience in housekeeping, she was saying? Is this something you like to do? What's your favorite part? What part do you like, dislike most? What is your experience in cooking and baking? Is this something you enjoy doing? Is your cooking healthy, inexpensive? What's your experience in sewing? Have you ever made a dress? Can you repair clothes? If I were interviewed again for a job, you'd have these job interview questions. And so these are questions that you want to develop um, in your own mind 
um, and you want to be able to answer them for somebody asking about you. Um, she answered she had done housework at home in her father's family. It was somewhat of an incomplete answer. It suggested more than was true. So Ellen White said, I asked these questions because as her character had been presented to me, she needed special education in practical duties of life, but had no taste or inclination for these things. In other words, this girl was special ed. <laughs> Eliezer re observed Rebecca. He saw her taking her responsibilities, getting water for the house. It may have been for drinking or cooking or bathing. And there are two more ingredients, but I'm only going to just mention them because of time. One is a positive mental and emotional outlook. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This is not simply happiness when everything goes right. This is inward joy that doesn't matter about circumstances. True contentment, gratitude, not murmuring, not complaining. Thankful if you were at the end of line for what food is still left. Not complaining about what others might have gotten. Not unsatisfied and restless, not jealous or envious, not possessive, not moody. And last but not least, I've already mentioned it, but it deserves its own category, healthy lifestyle. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And there you have it. The Bible's top ten major ingredients to home happiness. The presence of Christ, not self. Purity of heart. Underlying unity in our core values. Habitual courtesy in our interactions. Deference, not willfulness, not demanding, not dictatorial. One who will give you space and allow you to think and act for yourself. Love for order and organization, wise in time and money management. Consistent, patient, diligent, thorough. This shows commitment. Practical home skills. Positive mental and emotional outlook. Healthy lifestyle. And this is what heaven is like. And God wants the home to be a little heaven on earth. These are the basics that bring genuine, lasting joy. These are attributes that we all need. The purpose of dating is to determine if these happiness factors are present in our characters and in the character of the one we are dating. Now, I told you I was going to repeat something at the end that I gave at the very beginning. I don't want anyone to feel discouraged by this lecture. No one has all ten of these qualities for happiness. I guarantee I don't, but these are the, at least I know for what I am striving. A true Christian strives for these because they're like Jesus. And those who are desirous of these qualities in their life and are cooperating with the Master by surrendering choices, allowing Him to bring these disciplines into their life, those who persevere in this surrender will be happy and make others happy. We can take no steps toward marriage without Jesus. How can we know we are walking with Jesus? When we are walking with Christ, each step toward a marriage alliance is characterized by four things. Modesty, simplicity, Modesty is absence of self-assertion uh, or arrogance and purity of thought and manners. 
simplicity. What is simplicity? It has two parts. Freedom from pretense, cunning, or duplicity. Freedom from artificial adornment. Pretentious style or luxury. Plainness, as in simplicity of dress. Sincerity. What is sincerity? Honesty of intention, freedom from hypocrisy, disguise or false pretense, and an earnest purpose to please and honor God. Why are these so important? Because marriage affects the afterlife both in this world and in the world to come. A sincere Christian will make no plans that God cannot approve. Adventist home, page 49, is this quotation that we've outlined here. You must begin the process of selecting a life's partner by looking in the right place. Some go to bars and other single spots. Where does the Christian look for finding a life's partner? You find it within the welcoming community of Christians. Let me uh, quickly... Uh, Don't be in a rush during courtship. This question of marriage should be a study instead of a matter of impulse. We noted this at the close of our last. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord and keep His way. Courtship is the last chance to address issues that have been missed before the decision to date was made. And... Uh, um, we are just out of time. Let me just uh, read a little note that I, I uh, wrote and then... No, I'm just out of time. Oh, we're done. Um, those of you who have attended all three lectures, um, I want to make as my personal gift to you um, this, you can pick it up at the end, those of you who would like it but weren't able to attend it. Um, it's available for uh, $3. And, uh, um, and I just will take your word for it. And uh, I would rather have you have it. If you don't have the money, just take it. I really want these out. Don't worry about the uh, cost. In fact, just take it. Um, <laughs> let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this opportunity to have studied together. There's so much to know and so many pitfalls. We're so inexperienced. We know so little. We, we just depend on you to guide us day by day. Bless every young person here and those who are less young, those of us. I pray that your blessing will attend the rest of this conference. Bless Judy and Israel as they discuss uh, marriage skills. And now, thank you for each person that you put in their heart to come. And we just commit our lives to you in Christ's name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. 
or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.